Thank you for listening to the Renovation Church podcast. We're a family that believes you matter, and together we can do something that matters. We hope that this podcast aids you in your spiritual journey toward Jesus. If we can serve you on that journey, please let us know by visiting our website, renovationchurch.com. We always love to hear how the ministry of renovation is impacting your life. The best way to let us know is by leaving a review or tagging us on social media. Wherever you are in the world, know that Jesus loves you and we love you. Enjoy the podcast. So as I said, today we're starting a brand new series called Spiritual. And for the next several weeks, we're going to be attempting to answer the question, what does it mean to be a spiritual person? In fact, you'll hear people say that I'm spiritual, but not religious. And, and, and what does that mean? And what is actual spirituality? And so here's what I would ask you that over the course of these weeks, as much as you can, uh, don't miss one of these messages. Uh, and then secondarily, if you're already a follower of the way of Jesus, uh, then don't treat this as information you've heard a thousand times because there's an opportunity here for your heart to be refreshed in the good news that you have come to believe at one time that even you may be struggling with. So if you're in a season right now, for those of you in the room and online with us, if you're in a season of deconstructing, questioning, wrestling, then this series is perfect for you. Uh, Today, uh, we're going to be wrestling through the question of, is there more to life than this? Is there more to life than this? It's a question that uh, I've had to wrestle with at different times over my life, even, even sometimes still. But I think the most poignant moment that I ever had to address that question was when I was cut from the NFL. Now, despite what one might expect, uh, I was never actually interested in playing in the NFL. I know that sounds crazy, uh, but, but it wasn't a lifelong dream. It wasn't something that, that I'd kind of thought about since childhood, and, and one day I'm going to go through all of these things to arrive at this place where I'm going to make it into the league and I'm going to do X, Y, and Z. That was never in my heart. Uh, Football was a game that I enjoyed and that I excelled at as an athlete, but it was not a future dream for me. In fact, uh, uh, and I'm going to touch on this a little bit later, but some of you may not know that the summer before I actually signed with the Falcons, uh, I was in law school. And that's what I thought I was going to do. I was going to be a lawyer and then become a politician, and that was going to be my life. Things have gone very differently. How things started, how they are now. Um, So football was not something that had grabbed my heart. And so I was incredibly surprised at the amount of grief and depression and sorrow and brokenness that that I felt when I saw my name scrolling across the bottom of my parents' television on SportsCenter. That's how I found out I had been cut. Now, my agent called me just a few minutes later and said they had meant to call me earlier, but he didn't get an opportunity. But there I was sitting in my parents' living room watching SportsCenter, and across the bottom of the screen goes, the New Orleans Saints cut defensive tackle Leon's Crump. I remember sitting in that moment feeling crushed, uh, feeling uh, that uh, everything was effectively over. And years later, as I examined that, 60 seconds of swelling emotions and the moments that came before and after, uh, I've tried to dig down into why I felt that way. If this was not a lifelong dream, if this was not something that I always wanted to do, if this was not something I'd carried from childhood, why in the world did I feel so crushed when it was over? Why in the world would I place such high value on something that I never 
actually desired to do. Here's what I discovered. That somewhere along the way, in my NFL journey, football had become my why for existence. It had become my reason to live. And there were a lot of things that poured into that. I had family members calling for tickets and homeboys like, man, we always knew you was going to make it. You know, I'm like, I haven't talked to you in six years. How did you know I was always going to make it? Right. Uh-uh. And, and there was a lot of press around it because I didn't play a full college career. And so I was in ESPN, the magazine. There was all of these things being piled onto this moment that somewhere along the way, quietly and subversively, what entered my heart was an understanding that I exist for this game. And that it is the thing that gives me meaning. And so when it was over, it didn't feel like a game was over. It felt like I was over. Went into a pretty dark place in the bed for days, lights out, no food. I've never experienced anything like that since. And I share this brief glimpse into my life because I believe that Though the circumstances may differ and the metrics may differ, the feelings that I felt are all too familiar to humankind. If you're honest, you have felt those feelings too. The categories are interchangeable. Uh, For some of us, it is a present or previous marriage. For others of us, it is putting pressure on our children to write all the things that we did wrong and live the life that we were never afforded to live. For for, for some of us, uh, it is uh, work and, and wanting it to give us that sense sense of purpose, that sense of meaning, that sense of fulfillment, to, to scratch that deepest itch in our soul and give us significance. For some of us, it's school and how much education that we have, or dating and relationships. There's a litany of things, philanthropy and good deeds that we look to. We pour our lives into these endeavors, and they slowly become the reason for which we live. They become the reason for why we think we matter. They become the center of defining our purpose. And and all of this is driven by one question. Is there more to life than this? I'll never forget uh, watching Tom Brady after number whatever Super Bowl that he had won. And some of you who are sports fans, you'll remember this. He said in the interview there, and and the interviewer uh, said, so what are you going to do? You know, one of those dumb questions. Like, you just won the Super Bowl. Are you going to go to Disney World? You know, whatever. And, And he said, actually, what I... My first feeling after we won the game was there's got to be more to life than this. This man had multiple Super Bowls, and he was still never satisfied. And in fact, he still hasn't answered that question because he just lost his wife for a subpar football season. There's got to be more to life than this. The craziest thing about it is that we can spend multiple years, multiple careers, multiple relationships, multiple moments entering and exiting this cycle over and over and over again. And if you're a curious person as I am, then you're thinking to yourself, yeah, I think that's true, but why? Why do we do that? Because if we are honest, listen, if we are honest, much of what we do, we do because we don't know why we exist. Much of what we do, now, and I'm talking to everybody here, 
Whether you are a follower of the way of Jesus and whether you're online or in the room, whether you've been walking with Jesus for a long time or not, even the issues you have as a long-term Christian in walking out faithfully the things that you say that you believe is because somewhere deep down you still question if you are living toward the thing for which you exist. And so we spend all of our time searching, hoping, pouring our lives into anything that we might imagine give us a sense of purpose and meaning. And we look to those things to be the measure by which, listen, the measure by which we verify and validate that we matter and that our existence matters. And that's no way to live. In fact, hear me out, if we truly knew how valuable we are, if we knew the great care with which we came into being, if we knew how truly unique and wonderful we have been formed and architected in this body and in this mind and in this spirit, then no day, no moment would be filled with any sense of purposelessness. No moment would be filled with any questions of why we exist. We would not be left with this reverberating soundtrack. There's got to be more to life than this. But I think it's easy to go through life. You think you get to the next stage and it's going to satisfy the thing you've been looking for. Or you get to whatever it is and, and, and then it turns out to not be what you thought it was going to be. And, and, and it leaves you feeling what? A little bit vacant and disappointment. In fact, Bernard Levin, who was one of the great columnists of the last century, uh, he wrote this a long time ago, and it's important for you to know he was not a Christian. And in fact, he wrote in one of his columns for the 14,000th time, I'm not a Christian. And yet he also said this, countries like ours are full of people who have all the material comforts they desire, together with such non-material blessings as a happy family, and yet they lead lives of quiet desperation, understanding nothing but the fact that there is a hole inside of them. And however much food and drink they pour into it, however many motor cars and television sets they stuff it with, however many well-balanced children and loyal friends they parade around the edges of it, their life still aches. This is what he wrote. More familiar to you perhaps would be the actor Russell Brand. He wrote this, drugs and alcohol are not my problem. Reality is my problem. Drugs and alcohol are my solution to fill up the hole inside of me. And as I look back on that moment, I believe that's what I was experiencing. There was a hole growing for years. Even as I knew Jesus, let me be very clear. There was a hole that had been growing for years that I had tried to satisfy with other things off and on. And for whatever reason, I was quietly hoping that football would fill it. It's really a sort of a hunger maybe that I was feeling. A hunger that we all feel that can't really be satisfied by those things. Or as Bernard, <laughs> excuse me, Levin wrote, it still aches. And the reason we can't truly satisfy that hunger, listen, the reason that we can't truly satisfy that hunger is because it's not an emotional hunger. It's not a physical hunger. It's not a mental hunger. It's a spiritual hunger that we're trying to satisfy with material things. 
And so we stay hungry. We stay hungry. We look to material things or relationships or sexual experiences to fill that hunger. But it'll never scratch the itch. And it is to that hunger that Jesus says, I am the bread of life. I am the only one who can actually satisfy your spiritual hunger. Nothing else will really satisfy it. By equating himself with bread, Jesus is saying that I am essential for life. I am that which is life-giving. I am nourishment, he says. I am absolute satisfaction. Far beyond what any physical food or earthly treasure could ever bring you, I will satisfy your deepest longing. Listen, I pray truly, hear my heart on this. I pray that every one of you finds a godly person to love and be loved by. I pray that you find a job that fulfills your gifts and your talents and pays your bills and allows you to be generous. I pray that you have great friends that surround you. I pray that if you want children, God would give them to you. I pray that if you want to have impact, you'll have it. But if you look to those things as ultimate, they will always come up short. They will always crumble under the weight of your expectations and they will never actually satisfy They're not bad, they're just not ultimate. In fact, I heard this interesting thing. It gave me a little chuckle. Maybe it'll give you a chuckle. Teehee. I heard a Japanese woman say one time, it was on a random YouTube video, my children have got, listen, I never watched YouTube, but apparently that's where all the kids are. So I end up in these YouTube spirals with my children. (laughs) There's this Japanese woman. And she said, in Japan, it's like we have two stomachs. We have one stomach for ordinary food. And as I heard that, you know, ordinary food, meat, potatoes, that kind of thing. And I heard that, and I thought to myself, yeah, that's a lot like an equivalent to the kind of things that Bernard Levin was was talking about, good things, the things that we were just talking about, good things. I have a stomach for those kinds of things, and, and that stomach is easily filled. But she said, listen, she said, it's like I have another stomach. And she described this stomach as her rice stomach. And she said, unless we eat rice, we don't feel satisfied. And I would imagine that if Jesus had been speaking to her personally, he would have said, yes, and I am the rice of life. Right? I am the one who can satisfy that other stomach. I am the one... I am the one who can actually help you to navigate your spiritual hunger. But the question then is, why is Jesus the one? Why is he the one that can help us navigate our spiritual hunger? Well, he told us himself. He said, I am the way and I am the truth and I am the life. I am the way and I am the truth and I am the life. Now, this first statement, I am the way, is the actual answer to our first order question. Where do I come from? Where am I heading? Who am I? What's the point of my life? Is there any real meaning to this thing? When he says, I am the way, he is answering that question. And as we said already, most people spend a great deal of their life trying to find some kind of ultimate meaning. And Jesus has already told us, I got it right here. 
And Jesus is the way precisely, listen, because he is the truth of God and he is the life of God. In fact, I think of the great Russian novelist Leo Tolstoy. He wrote War and Peace. He wrote Anna Karenina for those of us who still read books. Um, And he also wrote another book called A Confession in which he told his life story. And he described in this book how as a child he had rejected Christianity as foolish. It was for the unthinking people. And he started to search for meaning and purpose in his life. And he he writes again that, that at first he thought, this is a direct quote, at first he thought life's just about having a good time. That was my first thought before Jesus. YOLO. Just make the most of life. Have fun. So he entered the social world of Moscow and St. Petersburg. He drank a lot. He, he got around a lot, right? And he led a wild life. And he writes that at the end of it, it just left him feeling empty. It just left him feeling empty. And then he thought to himself, well, maybe money is the answer. Maybe money is, maybe the American dream is the answer. I guess for him, it would be the Moscow dream. Or for wherever you are right now, all over the world, whatever country your dream is. Maybe the money is the answer. He'd inherited a lot of money. So he already inherited it, and then he started to make a lot of money from his books on top of that. But what he found, and this again is a direct quote, he said, money is a bit like seawater. The more you drink it, the more thirsty you are. It never satisfies. And so we thought, well, maybe fame, importance, success. If I can be really successful, then I'll find it. Did you know the Encyclopedia Britannica describes him as one or two of the greatest novelists in the whole world of literature? He made it. He made it. We're still in high school. They're still reading his books in AP literature. He made it. And yet it didn't satisfy. That wasn't the answer. And so we thought, well, maybe it's all about relationships and marriage and having a family. And so in 1862, he got married, had a very happy family, had 13 children. Let that wash over you for a second. 13. And they didn't have disposable diapers back then. 13. And he writes in his confession that it distracted him from his search for the overall meaning of life, but it still didn't satisfy. In fact, he was surrounded by what looked like the perfect world where he had everything in complete happiness. And yet, he said one question drove him to the verge of suicide. He said, what meaning has my life that the inevitability of death does not destroy. As he thought about this, he thought, well, the philosophers must have the answer. The scientists must have the answer. So he started to search in the field of science and philosophy to answer the question, why do I live? And the only answer that he came up with was this. He said, in the infinity of space and in the infinity of time, infinitely small particles mutate with infinite complexity. (laughs) He didn't find that very satisfying either. And so in the end of this search, 
And I hope you caught it. It was the arc of almost every human story. I started with partying and fun. It wasn't enough. And so I went on to money and it wasn't enough. And so I found a way to get famous and it wasn't enough. And so I found a girl I could love and had a bunch of children and it wasn't enough. And so I explored science and philosophy to see if more knowledge and information would lead to it and it wasn't enough. So at the end of his search, he was reminded of the poor Russians in his society from when he was a child and how fulfilled they seemed. And he realized that the difference between he and them was that they had found the answer through their faith in Jesus Christ. You know, 100 years later, nothing's really changed. Freddie Mercury, the lead singer of Queen, had amassed a huge fortune attracted thousands of fans, and, and yet shortly before he died, he admitted this in an interview. He said, you can have everything in the world and still be the loneliest man. Success has brought me a world of idolization and millions of pounds, but it's prevented me from having the one thing we all need, a loving, ongoing relationship. And ultimately, his answer is in Jesus too. The only loving and ongoing relationship, the only totally loving and ongoing relationship is a relationship with God. And when Jesus says, I am the way, he's saying, I am the way to that relationship. And so the question you might be asking yourself is, okay, I'm with you so far. What difference does Jesus actually make? And that's a valid question in a Western evangelical world. We won't get into that today. But what difference does Jesus actually make? Well, let me illustrate it this way <clears throat> in a little, a little hilarity. You see, I'm supposed to be wearing glasses. Okay, I am. Uh, we had the marriage conference this weekend. We were doing giveaways. I couldn't read the names on the paper. Embarrassed myself, embarrassed the people. I was sad about it. Uh, luckily, there's grace for that, right? I'm supposed to be wearing glasses. But, but as I stare down the barrel toward 50, I'm going through what most people my age go through. They're like, do I want that? Like, whatever that is over there where your children are gone and, and, and everything hurts all the time and you cannot look at baked goods without gaining weight, is that the life I want, right? And so not wearing my glasses is my subtle resistance to that reality, right? But here's the deal. I wish I could show you, I wish I could show you the size of the font on this screen. When... When I started preaching, I used to use a 10-point font. Just, just multiply it a little bit, right? <laughs> and, and here's what's ridiculous. What's ridiculous about my refusal to wear glasses is that I know things are brighter and clearer when I look through those lenses. I know that I can see more clearly. I know that the world has more color. I know that I could see better the details of my wife's beautiful face when I look through my... Now, I can see. I can see. But when I have my glasses, I can really see. And everything becomes more clear. And let me tell you, that is the difference that Jesus makes. That's the difference he makes. That with Jesus, amen, with Jesus, we can really see. 
In fact, C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun is risen. Not only because I can see it, but because by it, I see everything else. Now, not only did Jesus say that he was the way, he also said that he is the truth. He is the truth. And you can say to yourself, well, that's great. That's nice for you. In this relationship with Jesus, you find meaning and purpose in your life. But that's not for me. Well, logically, logically, hear me out. Logically, that can't be the case. Because if it's true, it's true for everyone. And if it's not true, it's not true for anyone. And so here's the question. Is it true? It matters that it's true. So the question is, is it really true? Well, C.S. Lewis put it again this way. Christianity is a statement which, if it's false, it's of no importance. Right? If, If it's not real, it doesn't matter. Oh, man, but if it is real. It is of infinite importance. The one thing that it cannot be, and I'm saying this to everybody here, no matter where you are, everybody online right now, no matter where you are in your spiritual journey, what it can't be is moderately important. It is either infinitely important or not important at all. But the question remains, is it true? Is it true? We're going to look at that a lot more in the coming weeks, but I'll, I'll stop for a moment and just say this. That most of you who know me, who really know me, you know that I'm a natural skeptic. That's how I'm wired. And so when I became a Christian, I didn't want to just leap into faith. I wanted to see all the evidence. I told you this. I I was studying to be a lawyer. And I still preach like a lawyer. Maybe you haven't noticed. But I set up a case. I think through your arguments ahead of time. I squash them. And then I make room for the Holy Spirit to do what he does. (laughs) That is how my mind works. I argue with you during the week. Like, well, what if they say this? Oh, well, I'll say that. (laughs) I'm a lawyer. And so when I came to faith, I did what any good lawyer would do. I got all the documents I could get my hands on. In fact, there are more reliable copies of the Bible than most of the books, all of the books, actually, that you would have read in college. And the reason I said most is because I don't know if you actually read these books in college. But Ulysses, we count that as a great Greek work to study culture and society. And we have thousands more reliable copies of the Bible in original manuscripts. And so I began to search the documents. I began to search the text. I began to read through the New Testament. It began to read me. And it astonished me how much evidence there actually is for the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. So this is not an unintelligent thing. There are many intelligent people who are not followers of the way of Jesus. They are far from God. Some of them would even call themselves atheists. But let me tell you something. There are many intelligent people, intelligent people, who have also come to the truth through the facts of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. In fact, one former professor of modern history at Oxford University described the resurrection as the best attested fact in history. And as I dug into this a little bit, I hadn't really realized How many pioneers of modern science were followers of the way of Jesus? Descartes, Newton, Kepler, Galileo, Copernicus, Faraday, Boyle, Mendel, Kelvin, Pasteur, Lister, Maxwell, Simpson, all of them. Followers of the way of Jesus. And one of the greatest scientists of our time, Francis Collins, who was director of the Human Genome Project, a respected genetic biologist in the world, He investigated the evidence and was amazed, he said, at the historical evidence for Jesus. 
And so he describes going out one day, examining the beauty of creation, falling to his knees in the dewy grass, and giving his life to Christ. Why? Because the truth was palpable enough. Now, we hear truth and we think knowledge. And that's part of it. When Jesus says, I am the truth, though he's not just talking about intellectual truth. In the Hebrew language, it's, it's not just head knowledge, it is heart knowledge. Another way to say it is, it is experiential knowledge. Now you ask yourself, what is the difference in intellectual and experiential knowledge? Let me illustrate it this way. I've been married to Brianna Crump for nearly two decades. But suppose before we got married, I wandered into a Barnes and Noble. Before I ever met her, Anybody else still go to bookstores or is it just me? Thank you, 12 people. Um, we are the ones that are going to run society in short order. Suppose I wandered into a Barnes and Noble. And there was a book right there at the front. You know, they got the little table, little piles of books. And there was a brand new book right there in the front. And, and, and the title of the book was Brianna Marie, The Amazing Woman. And I picked up that book and, and I thought, oh, this looks fascinating. Chapter 1. Her extraordinary intelligence. Chapter two, her hilarious personality in Barbie Walk. <laughs> Chapter three, her potential to love a crazy man. Chapter four, her baking skills that have derailed every fitness goal I've had for the last 18 years. Chapter five, her beauty. Now I could read that book and say, wow. She does indeed sound like an amazing woman, and now I have knowledge. But I don't have experience. No, it is in the years of marriage that I gain an experience of her. And I know experientially that it's not just words on a page. She is actually an amazing woman. And when Jesus says, I am the truth, he is inviting us to experience him as truth through a relationship with him, not just as knowledge that we keep in our head. And that is one of the great gaps in Western Christianity is we know what the right things are, but they have not made it to our hearts. Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth. And finally, he said, I am the life. In fact, he said, I've come that you can have life and life in all of its abundance. Or another translation might read, I've come so that you can have life and life abundantly. All of its fullness. And when he says that, what Jesus is saying is that I have come so that you can have life as life was meant to be. So that you can have life to the full. I've come to address eliminate and cast aside all of the things that keep you from having the life that I would have you to have. And I didn't ask you to do it for me. I didn't ask you to get yourself together first. No, I said, come as you are, but you don't have to leave the same. I've come to give you life, meaning what? That he has come to deal with our guilt. He has come to give his life in our place. It is an amazing expression in John 3, 16, when, when Jesus says, I did not come to condemn the world. I came to save it. 
I came to save it. Why? Because God loves you. And that is a fact. It is not a fiction. It is not something that has been pulled out of the air. God has testified it in his own scriptures. He loves you. He loves you. He loves you. He loves you. And he loves you enough so that in order for you to have life, he would give over his own life. And when we trust that experientially, well then, he also takes away our guilt and our shame. It doesn't mean everything is easy. It's not going to be easy. If somebody told you Christianity is easy, they are liars. (laughs) You have lied. Sir or ma'am, it's not easy. It's not easy, but it's full. It's fulfilling. It's rewarding. It's not boring. If it's boring, you're doing it wrong. It's not boring. And in fact, it's quite rebellious. It's quite rebellious in our host culture to follow the way of Jesus is the most rebellious thing we could do. To follow, amen. To follow the way of Jesus is the most rebellious thing we can do. Is there more to life than this? Yes, and it's found in Jesus. And it is relevant, and it is true, and it is good. Here's my testimony. I believe that Jesus is the bread of life. I believe that he is the one who gives us meaning and purpose. I believe that he is the only one that can satisfy our hunger. And if you would believe that today, then everything in your life can be different forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and the power of your word. We thank you for the great gift that you have given us in Jesus. We pray, Lord God, that you would help us, no matter where we are in our spiritual journey, that today would be a new day. And that your truth would go from our heads to our hearts. Or maybe, just maybe, we'd even believe it for the very first time. Father, I pray for those who are still wrestling. Be what only you can be, Holy Spirit. Be near, be peace, be comfort. Be the patient and loving God you are as you woo them toward an abundant life. We ask all of these things in the matchless and precious name of Jesus. Amen.